0: Hi, thanks for tuning in. I'm Danny Hill, The Monk on a Motorbike. Today my guest is Nir Eyal. Nir is a best-selling author, tech entrepreneur, university lecturer and investor who literally wrote the book on how to build habit-forming products. The model he described in his first book, Hooked, has been used by countless tech startups such as Fitbod to build a huge customer base. But in his latest book, Indistractable, he explains how to stop getting distracted by tech and get on with the business of living a fulfilling life. Here he talks about his own journey to becoming indistractable, how getting on with our stuff is less about the external distractions than it is about our own inner state, and how wasting time isn't always a waste of time. If you find you can't keep away from Facebook or Netflix and knuckle down to whatever it is you'd really like to be doing, then listen in. As always, there are show notes on my website, www.monkonamotorbike.com. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to get in touch. My email is on the website. Enjoy. So Nir, welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for taking time out of what I know is a pretty packed schedule. And as you've just told me, you're now in Singapore and it's getting quite late at night. So uh, no, thank you for taking the time. Of course, my pleasure. So just, you've, you've, I mean, you you have literally written the book on how to build habit-forming technology. And, you know, critics would say addictive technology, if you like. And then you've literally written the book on how to get away from the distractions of technology, which people are saying is a scourge of modern living. Uh, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that journey from, from hooked to distractible.
1: Sure. Sure. So yeah, my first book was called hooked, how to build habit forming products. And I intentionally did not call the book how to build addictive products because an addiction is very different from a habit. A habit is simply an impulse to do a behavior with little or no conscious thought. And we have good habits as well as bad habits. So the idea behind hooked was to democratize the techniques used by Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and the video gaming companies and the news media to keep you hooked in order that we can use the same exact psychology that keeps us hooked to those products to get us hooked to healthy habits. I didn't teach Facebook and Google and the video game companies how to do this stuff. They've known how to do it for years before I wrote the book. I wrote this book so that the rest of us can build the kind of products that build healthy habits in people's lives. In fact, the only case study in the first edition of the book was the Bible, the Bible app. (laughs) You know, I, I show people how the Bible app uses the hooked model to get people hooked to reading scripture. Now, I chose that example very intentionally because if you're the kind of person that says, you know what, organized religion is a force for good in the world. It brings people together it gives them hope, it gives them purpose, it gives them moral guidance, well, then you think that forming habits around the Bible app is a good thing. And if you think that organized religion is a bad thing, that it causes divisiveness and vi- and violence and uh, separates people based on sectarian grounds, well, then you think forming habits around uh, the Bible is a terrible idea. And so I use that book very intentionally to show people it's not the 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 app that we're talking about here. It's about to what ends it's used. It's not the techniques itself. It's about what we do with these technologies that matters. Uh, And so it it really is in the eye of the beholder. Is there anything wrong with the Bible app? Is, is it, is the Bible app good? Yes. Is the Bible app bad? Yes. (laughs) Is Facebook good? Yes. Is Facebook bad? Yes. It's complicated. So anybody who tries to give you this black and white, Dichotomy between technology evil. Uh, it's it's rubbish. It's unrealistic. It's that's just not the modern world. And it, this is what simple minds do when they can't understand complex problems. They 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 bifurcate them into good and bad. Ah, the technology these days, right? People have always said technology these days. People have always said that technology is melting your brain and and doing these horrible things to us. They said it about uh, the radio and they said it about the television and they said it about even all the way back to the written word. Uh, People have said this stuff. Socrates, Socrates said how the written word was a horrible technology that was going to enfeeble men's minds. So we always have these reactions with new forms of media and for good reason. We should be cautious of new technologies because You know, Sophocles said that nothing vast enters the life of mortals without a curse. And when you think about something as vast as the Internet, yeah, of course, there's going to be a lot of great things. But of course, there are going to be some curses that come with it. And so the way we deal with it is by understanding how these technologies work. And we can, so that we can extract the good elements of using these technologies uh, and do away with and deal with the bad elements of these, of these technologies. And so that is, was exactly my goal with Hooked. And that's exactly what's happened. So uh, many companies, countless companies, have used the first book to help people build healthy habits. Uh, uh, companies like FitBot get people hooked to exercise by using the Hooked model. Uh, Kahoot, the world's largest educational software, uses the hook model to get kids hooked to education. Uh, companies like the New York Times use the hook model to get people to engage with local news. So we can absolutely use these techniques to build healthy habits in people's lives. Now, the flip side to understanding how to build good habits is that I also have a profound understanding of how we break bad habits. And so that's what Indistractable is all about. Indistractable is about, okay, when we have these, these services that maybe we overuse that sometimes distract us, and I'm not just talking about the technology, all sorts of things can distract us. Uh, and so what I wanted to do is to help give a guide for how do we break some of those bad habits, whether they're you know, new technologies like Facebook or older technologies like watching too much television uh, reading too much of the newspaper. There's all kinds of potential distractions in the world that are much older than than uh, our cell phones. And so what I wanted to do was to help people deal with distraction in all its forms.
0: Sure, and it's, it's something actually, you, a theme that goes through both books is, it, it is it's less about the technology than it is about human behavior. And something right. you say very early on in your book, which I really liked, in Indistractable in your second book, is And there's a story i I'd quite like to get you to recount actually about why you wrote Indistractable to do with your daughter. And then one of the mm-hmm. things you said is after a while you realised that it, the, the, the devices, the technology wasn't the problem. It was something deeper. It was something inside yourself that was the issue that we needed to, to deal with. And the rest of the book pretty much goes on from there about how we deal with our internal world and, and right. the external world.
1: Right. No, that's exactly right. So the, the 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 pivotal moment for me in my life was uh, shortly after I published Hooked. I had a moment in my life when I was uh, when I really had to reconsider my relationship with distraction. I was with my daughter one afternoon, and we had this day plan to. She, she was what's of
0: age at that point.
1: Uh, she must have been around six years old.
0: So yeah, young girl.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so we we had some time one afternoon just to have some quality time together. And uh, we had this book of activities that daddies and daughters could play together. And one of the activities in this book was to ask each other this question. If you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I wish I could tell you what she said, but I can't. Because in that moment, for whatever reason, I decided it was a good time to look at my phone. And my daughter got the message that I was sending, that whatever was on my device was more important than she was. And she left the room to go play with some toy outside. And by the time I looked up from my phone, she was gone. And I realized that I had blown this perfect daddy-daughter moment. And if I'm honest with you, it wasn't just with my daughter that this happened. I would sit down at my desk to get some work done. And somehow 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes later, I'd be doing something that I didn't intend to do checking the news or looking at uh, Facebook or check, you know, checking email when I need to work on a big project uh, and, and not doing what I said I would do. I would say I was going to exercise and I wouldn't. I would say I'm going to eat right and I didn't. And so I was really interested in this, this fascinating question of why is it that we know what to do and yet don't do it? And that's, that's kind of a new phenomenon. You know, Plato 2,500 years ago Talked about what he called in the Greek akrasia, the tendency to do things against our better interests. So distraction is not a new problem. Plato talked about it 2,500 years ago. What is a new problem is that the the Greek philosophers, they believed that people didn't do the right thing because they didn't know what to do. Okay, if we just educated people, and this is kind of the standard wisdom, that if we just, if people knew what to do, then they would do the right thing. But that's clearly not true. Don't we all basically know how to? Eat right? Who doesn't know that a healthy salad is is better for you than a a chocolate cake? We know that. (laughs) Who doesn't know that we need exercise every day? Who doesn't know that if you want to have better relationships, you have to be fully present with people? Uh, Who doesn't know that if you want to be better at your job, you have to do the work, especially the hard stuff that other people don't want to do? We know this. And frankly, if you don't know how to do something, we have the luxury of Google, right? Just Google it and you can find the answer. So the problem is no longer that we have a, a shortage of information. We are flooded with information the problem is we don't know how to stop getting distracted we don't know how to do whatever it is that we know we should do
0: brilliant Uh, now there's i mean i was flicking through my notes from your book this morning and it's it's a it's it's, i really like in distractor but it's beautifully written Um, and it's endlessly quotable so i'm not going (laughs) to try there was um yeah, there was this one quote, which is you're just saying there, and you said, if you care about your work, your family, and your physical and mental well-being, you must learn to become indistractable, you know, manage those distractions. And I think that's the point you're just saying there, it affects right. us in every area. So, right. um, I wonder if you could just say a little bit about sort of a synopsis, if you like, about the principles from Indistractable, about how we can become indistractable, how we can learn to deal with those distractions.
1: Sure. Absolutely. So um, so let me kind of paint the picture here of the indistractable model. And the place we start is to really understand what is distraction. So the best place to understand what distraction is, is to understand what distraction is not. Now, if you ask most people, what is the opposite of distraction? Most people will tell you it's focus, but that's not exactly right. The opposite of distraction is not focus. That if you actually look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is not focus the opposite of distraction is traction that both words come from the same latin root trahare which means to pull and you'll notice that both words traction and distraction end in the same six letters a c t i o n that spells action so traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do actions that help you live out your values and become the kind of person you want to become The opposite of traction is distraction, any action that pulls you away from what you plan to do, actions that pull you away from your values and the person you want to become. So this dichotomy between traction and distraction is very important to understand because of two reasons. Number one, it shows us how any action can be either traction or distraction. Let me give you an example. You know, I used to, before I embarked on this line of research, I would sit at my desk and I would say, okay, no, no more procrastinating, right? No more distraction. I'm going to get to work. I've got that big project I have to work on. I don't really feel like doing it, but I got to get it done. Here I go. I'm not going to delay. Nothing's going to stop me. I'm going to start it right now. But first, let me check some email. <laughs> Right. How yeah. often does that happen to us? We do that all the time. I used to yeah, do that. We can all relate to right? that. Yeah. Right. And I used to justify and say, well, you know, I, I need to do email anyway. You know, that's like a work related task or let me just do those things on my to do list. They're kind of easy to check off so I can get some momentum going. Right. And what I didn't realize is that I was letting distraction trick me. This is the most pernicious form of distraction. It's not Facebook or YouTube or Instagram. When you're on those things, you know you're distracted. If you're at work and you're checking a video game or whatever, you know you're distracted. That's not the dangerous kind of distraction. The dangerous kind of distraction is the kind that we don't even realize is distracting us. I call it pseudo work, right? I'm doing a work-related task, so I justify it in my mind but what has happened is I've allowed distraction to trick me into prioritizing what feels urgent at the expense of what is actually important. And that is game over. You've, you, you've lost it, right? Because you, you always are reacting to things and you have no time to actually do the stuff that's really important. That's the most dangerous form of distraction. The kind that you don't even realize is distracting you. So any action can be a distraction, point number one. Point number two any action can also be traction. So, you know, we hear today this ridiculous narrative that technology is hijacking our brains, that it's addicting everyone. And all this, you know, this chicken little narrative, which is completely not based on any sort of science. It's, it's pure nonsense clickbait. And the, the reason people tell us this, ironically, the reason we read about these type of headlines, that technology is addicting us and hijacking our brains and all this nonsense is ironically because it makes us click on the internet headlines to get us to read more of their stupid publications. It's ridiculous. And it's and it's hypocritical because there is no moral hierarchy behind, between how you spend your time and I spend my time. Any pastime is fine as long as you do it with forethought. Who says that reading a book is somehow morally superior to playing a video game? There's nothing wrong with either. If you want to watch a movie on Netflix, take a walk, pray, meditate, who am I to say what you should do in your leisure time? So why do we apply this special you know, uh, status of saying, oh, you know, playing a video game or going on Facebook or Instagram, that's frivolous, right? But me watching a football match, that's okay. What? No, it's not. Anything is fine as long as it's done with intent. If you want to spend your time... In whatever pastime is in accordance with your values, as long as there is forethought put into that activity, it's great. And so I wanna free people from the guilt of thinking that somehow using online technology is, is, is frivolous or is, 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 uh, is somehow inherently a time waster. No, if it's done with intent, it's perfectly fine. The time you plan to waste is not wasted time. So the difference between traction and distraction is one word. And that one word is forethought. As long as you do these things on your schedule, not the app makers, not the tech companies, not anybody else's schedule, but your schedule, it's perfectly fine. Because now you've taken a distraction and you've turned it into traction.
0: Yeah, there's, there's the, the intentional living seems to be very much a, a a theme runs through. If anything, what I found really interesting, it's almost like a distraction, almost like a sort of a Buddhist mindfulness manual, but set very much in urban technological language. You know, you kind of go, there is a problem with distraction. There there is suffering. There is pain. Um, right. There, there there is there, and the reason for this pain is this endless wanting this endless craving and that, that's going to come to an end but there is a cure for this and that's that's being mindful being present and being very very intentional um, right right and, and i think it's it's really
1: about establishing new habits because it, what you're doing is you're hinting at i think the first step to becoming indistractable which is about mastering the internal triggers that you know we tend to blame what we call the external triggers the pings, the dings, the rings, the notifications, the things outside of us that lead us towards distraction. And they certainly can be a catalyst for traction or distraction. But that turns out to not be the number one cause of distraction. As much as we blame these things outside of us, the root cause of distraction is not what is happening outside of us, but rather what is happening within us. That distraction begins from within that these internal triggers are defined as uncomfortable emotional states that the answer to Plato's 2500-year-old question of why do we do things against our better interest is the the answer is that the reason we do things against our better interest is because procrastination and distraction is not a character flaw right there's nothing wrong with you if you get distracted as i often used to do it's not that there's anything wrong with you you're not you know there's no problem with your morality or somehow you're a lesser person. You know, people have so much guilt and shame associated with procrastination and distraction, which actually makes the problem worse. It's just that you don't have the tools. You don't have these new habits to deal with discomfort in a healthy way rather than a harmful way. The harmful way is, Oh, I'm feeling bored. I immediately need to check the news. I'm feeling Lonely. Let me check Facebook. I'm feeling, uh, I'm feeling uncertain. Let me just Google something real quick. And so as opposed to these reflexive habits that we have that can lead us towards distraction, we can reshape our habits so that we have some new behaviors that help us deal with those uncomfortable internal triggers in a healthier manner.
0: Sure. So you're saying we're getting away from blind reactivity against the discomfort of wanting something and we're getting into a more mindful sense of responding to our situation with with intention.
1: Right. That's right. Right. So the first step is about mastering the internal triggers and their whole series of techniques that I talk about there. I don't really go into mindfulness or uh, I touch on mindfulness just a little bit. I don't advise meditation. Not that meditation doesn't work. It's just been you know it's been talked about to death (laughs) everybody knows that if you're able to meditate meditate for many people it's not it's not the end all solution. It doesn't solve everything for them. So I wanted to give other solutions, but of course, if meditation works for you, keep doing it. Uh, But I wanted to write something for folks who have maybe tried meditation and it doesn't really work all that well for them, or they're looking for some other techniques to help them as well. So I don't really go into meditation that much. I only give one mindfulness technique. I want, you know, I wanted to give lots and lots of other techniques that people can use that they haven't heard of. The the book is full of, of unconventional wisdom. I turn over a lot of apple carts in the books. uh, A lot of things that I, thought were true before I started this line of research turn out to not be so true after I'd done this research. And so I, I wanted to share some of those findings in the book.
0: No, absolutely so. and i wasn't I wasn't trying to suggest that you should have a meditation bit. and actually, what I like about it is the fact that a lot of the techniques are kind of known, but you've languaged them in a very urban sort of modern way, and I think it's always really nice to visit these kind of tech revisit these techniques in in ways that people can relate to much much more immediately. Uh, I, I think just to move on slightly, one of the things I do like as well is that it comes through quite strongly in your book is there's a real sense of being kind to yourself, having self compassion, you know, and not guilt tripping yourself all the time. Right. There, there, there is a lot of, yes, you've got to live intentionally, you've got to think things through, and you've got to force a certain amount. But hey, just be nice to yourself, man. So, really That's nice. That's exactly
1: right. Though. We definitely know that self compassion is one of these traits that helps people accomplish their long term goals. Uh, and, you know, what, what I found was that people, when it comes to distraction, they tend to fall into one of two buckets. We call them the blamers and the shamers. The blamers, they blame distractions on things outside themselves, right? It's Facebook, it's Instagram, it's the news. Oh, this is what I hear all the time these days. It's the modern world these days. That's why I'm distracted, right? The blamers blame these things outside themselves, which is, which is futile, because you can't change any of that stuff. That stuff's not going anywhere, right? So it doesn't make sense to keep complaining about it unless you plan to act on it. The shamers, on the other hand, they don't blame things outside themselves they shame themselves and here's what that sounds like Oh, there i go getting distracted again i always do this i have such a short attention span i'm such a distractible person you know people put these labels on themselves and of course we act in accordance to our own self image behavior change is in fact identity change and so when we have these negative self images what happens when we feel shame is that we unintentionally spur more of these internal triggers. You know, shame feels horrible. It's a, it's a very uncomfortable sensation to feel shame. And so what do we do when we feel shame? We experience more of these internal triggers. What are we likely to do when we experience more internal triggers if we're not trained to deal with them in a healthful way? We look for more distraction to take our mind off of that emotional discomfort. So that doesn't work either. So we don't want to be blamers. We don't want to be shamers. We wanna be what we call claimers. Claimers claim responsibility not for their feelings and urges. This is a very important point. People don't realize you do not control your urges. Having the urge to eat that piece of chocolate cake or smoke that cigarette or uh, check Facebook or turn on the television, having the urge is not in your control. You do not have control over these internal triggers. What you do control is how you respond, hence the word responsibility, how you respond to those sensations. So it's just like a sneeze, right? You don't control the urge to sneeze. If you have to sneeze, that, that's not, you don't have any control over that. What you do have control over is what you do in response to that urge. Do you sneeze all over everyone or do you cover your face so that you don't get anyone else sick? And it's the same way when it comes to our internal triggers. Do we respond to them in this reflexive way that is just some form of escape, whether it's uh, you know, too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, something to take our mind off of these uncomfortable emotions so that we can escape them? Or do we have habits built and a toolkit ready so that we can deal with those uncomfortable sensations in a
0: healthier manner that leads us towards traction
1: rather than distraction?
0: There was something you said in there which I'm going to try and quote you. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I really liked. How you said something like, behaviour changes, identity change." Right. I really like that. It's one of the things you talk about quite early on. Is this, you know, in taking agency, we 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 need to reimagine our external world, our task, and reimagine our own temperament and basically change our identity. And it, it's it's a it's a remarkable piece of work to advise. I wonder yeah, if you could say yeah. a bit
1: about that. Sure. No, it's it's very important. In fact, in 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 the beginning of the book, I advise people to consider whether their self image is serving them. And so, there's this section around uh, reimagining your temperament, where you know many people carry around these self image the, the self image that that hurts them. That is is certainly not serving them. Like this self image, you know, many people carry around this self image of oh, I am a certain type of person. I have a short attention span. I'm lazy. I don't like physical fitness. I'm a morning person. I'm this on the Myers-Briggs. And many times those things don't (laughs) serve us because we begin to act, we conform to how we believe we are supposed to be. And so there's nothing necessarily wrong with self-image if it serves you. So one of the forms of self-image that I talk about in the book that doesn't serve us is this belief that's been circulating for for over a decade now that many people have heard this idea that willpower is a depletable resource now uh in the psychology community this idea is called ego depletion and uh this is this is something that we probably all felt in some form or another i used to say this to myself all the time you know i would come home from work and i'd say oh what a rough day i feel spent i have no more willpower left give me that pint of ice cream, I'm gonna sit on the couch and watch some Netflix, right, right? Because I have no willpower left. We've probably said that to ourselves. And, and actually that idea did get some, some credence when there was a, a study uh, conducted by a psychologist that showed that that actually was true, that people run out of willpower like gas in a gas tank. The, the thing is though, that the, the study sounded a little bit too good to be true. And so in the social sciences, when there's a study that doesn't sound like it's, uh, it, it's 100% kosher, no problem. In the sciences, we just rerun the study. We run the study again and we see if we can get the same results or was it a fluke? Turns out it was a fluke. That we have not been able to replicate these results that show that ego depletion is real. It's not real, except, except in one group of people. There is one group of people who really do experience ego depletion. They actually really do run out of the ability to control their willpower, just like someone would run out of gas in a gas tank. Who are those people? The only people that really do experience ego depletion are the people who believe that willpower is a depletable resource. That's it. Those are the only people because they believe that they're spent. And then of course they act in accordance with that belief. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it's just like this, this nonsense that technology is hijacking our brains, that it's addicting everyone. Well, when you tell people that kind of stuff, they believe it. And they say, oh, you see, my kid is addicted to video games. What can I do about it? The algorithms have me checking Facebook all the time. What am I gonna do about it? You know what they do about it? Nothing. Because when there's an addiction, there's a dealer, there's someone who's controlling you, right? And so when you use that kind of language, it makes people submissive. It makes people say, Well, what am I gonna do? I can't do anything about it. It leads to what we call learned helplessness. As opposed to calling it what it really is, it's not an addiction, it's a distraction for the vast majority of people. Now, some people do actually have the pathology of addiction, just like some people are alcoholics, but you know, the vast majority of us, we have a pint of beer. We're not all alcoholics, right? And so somehow, how are we all addicted to technology? It's ridiculous. And it's not a, a, a helpful way to think of things. And so we have to be very careful about our, our self-image. And we can actually use self-image to help us become indistractable. So this is why I actually called the book Indistractable, because indistractable sounds like indestructible. It sounds like a superpower. And that's why I call it the, the skill of the century, that I really do believe that this should be our identity. We should wear this like a moniker uh, because there, there's a lot of research out of the, the psychology of religion that shows when people think of themselves Uh, with some kind of identity, when they have a a noun that they use to describe themselves, I am a Christian, I am a vegetarian, I am a a liberal, whatever it might be, when you use a particular moniker, a, a noun to describe yourself, you become much more likely to act in accordance with that identity. For example, a vegetarian doesn't wake up in the morning and say, hmm, I wonder if I should have some bacon for breakfast today. No, that decision is already made. It's part of who they are, right? They are vegetarians. They don't eat meat. It's part of their identity. And so we can do the same thing when it comes to becoming indistractable, that we can use this identity to help us live out our goals of being the kind of people who do what we say we're going to do, Who control their attention and choose their life by proudly declaring, I am indistractable. It's part of your identity.
0: Wow, I like that. Do you put a lot of work into this book? There's been a lot of research. How's the journey been for you? You know, the book aside, just your own journey, working out these techniques, you know, falling over, I'd imagine, often. I wonder if you could say, say something about how your journey's been to moving towards indistractability.
1: So it it took me five years to write this book. And the reason it took me five years is because the first three years I kept getting distracted. <laughs> I mean, right. I wrote this book for me. I'll be totally honest. I didn't write it for the readers. I, I really have, have been flattered that so many people find the book helpful. Um, but uh, you know, I did not write that write it for you. I wrote it for me because I am a very I was a very distracted person. I've always struggled with self-control. I've always struggled with self-discipline. I used to be clinically obese at one point in my life. So I know what it feels like to feel out of control. Uh, I felt out of control with my eating. I used to feel out of control with my use of technological distractions. And so this was a problem that I personally had. It wasn't until I had done three years of research and finally figured out the most important tenets of becoming indistractable. And Nothing in my book is particularly new research. I mean, I I actually don't like new psychology research. The good stuff is is actually dated. It's it's, you know, decades old research that just hadn't been applied in in a methodology. You know, the academics, you know, there's a joke that goes around. It's not very funny, but the the joke in academia is that getting a PhD is about knowing more and more about less and less. And so what many psychologists do is that they specialize in a very specific niche. So very few have the luxury to look at the big picture. And so I sorted through reams of academic journals to try and figure out what was important and what's not important. So that's where I came up with these four most important strategies to becoming indistractable. That's step number one is about mastering the internal triggers. Step number two is about making time for traction. Step number three is about hacking back the external triggers. And then step number four is about preventing distraction with pacts. Unfortunately, we only had time to, to dive into that first step, but there's a lot more in the book that I hope people will check out. And, and how has it affected me? Well, you know, there's no facet of my life that I haven't uh, uh, improved by becoming indistractable. I'm I'm 42 years old and I'm in the best shape of my life. I've never been this physically fit, even as a teenager, because I used to be obese. Uh, so I, I finally exercise when I say I will. I have a better relationship with my daughter than I've ever had before in my life. I've been married for 18 years and I have a better relationship with my wife than ever uh, because I am fully present when I say I will be. And I'm more productive at work than I've ever been uh, because I live with personal integrity. I am indistractable. Do I get distracted from time to time? Of course I do, particularly when things change, right? So as we go through different uh, crises in life, that means that sometimes I get distracted. But here's the difference. Being indistractable does not mean you never get distracted. I made up the term, by the way. The word indistractable is a made-up word, (laughs) and so I can define it any way I want. So being indistractable doesn't mean you don't get distracted. It means you are the kind of person who learns from when they got distracted and doesn't keep making the same mistake. You strive to do what you say you're going to do. So a distractible person keeps making the same mistakes, right? There's a wonderful quote by Paola Coelho who said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. And so many people decide to be distractible because they get distracted by the same crap again and again and again, and they don't do anything about it. An indistractable person, when they do get distracted, as we all invariably will on the path to becoming indistractable, an indistractable person says, ah, okay, I got off track, why? Was it because of an internal trigger, an external trigger, or a planning problem? There's only three reasons for every distraction, and they take steps now, today, to make sure they don't get distracted tomorrow. And that's what becoming indistractable is all about. It's an iterative process, step-by-step, step, to make sure we live with personal integrity to become indistractable.
0: What, what's, when you were building up to this, you've obviously really got on top of this process and you've obviously mastered a lot of it. What sort of difficulties and pitfalls do you encounter along the way? Well, it's,
1: it's uh, you know, for me, uh, what kind of difficulties? I'll, I'll tell you, some, uh, What a difficulty I see in others sometimes is that they read the book and they feel like they have to do everything all at once uh, or that it's too much of a burden to try and, uh, and adopt, you know, all these techniques. And you don't have to do that. If you understand the four key strategies, not the tactics, right?, Tactics are what we do. Strategy is why we do it. So the strategies are more important than the tactics. So you can hear all kinds of life hacks and, you know, various uh, productivity techniques out there, but that's not as important, right? There's all kinds of silly little tricks you can use. What's much more important is to understand the deeper psychology, that picture in your mind of, ah, I got distracted. Was it because of traction, distraction, internal triggers or external triggers? That's the strategy we need to understand. And then we can come up with our own tactics and we can adopt them slowly in our life. We don't have to do everything all at once. We can adopt one technique after another, after another, most importantly to see ourselves as different, to see ourselves as empowered, not being controlled by these technologies, but in fact, controlling them.
0: What kind of response have you had to the book? Have people told you their lives have changed? Has there been a, Oh, it's been it's been fantastic. I mean, the
1: the, the book is uh, is selling very well, which is great because we're not doing any advertising for it. It's just about word of mouth. And uh, it's been it's been really great to see because I think people have been really uh, desperate to figure out how to adapt to these new technologies in a way. That, that they don't have to stop using them. I think they're sick and tired of, of professors who don't even have a social media account telling them to stop using social media or stop checking email uh, when, when many people's livelihoods depend on these technologies. And, and, and they're so valuable if they're used properly. I mean, the connections that we can make, the, the friendships we can form, uh, these, these technologies are miraculous that we can do these things. And so I think people are really looking for a, a tech positive way to, to make sure that we can, it can get the best out of these tools without letting them get the best of us. And so the response is, has really been remarkable. Uh, we, we passed 150,000 copies on Audible alone. And so the book is selling very well. And, uh, and I, I get messages from folks all the time about how you know, they give the book to their spouse or to their kids or to their coworkers. And so I'm, I'm, I'm particularly proud of that. Uh, that's, that's great when people wanna share their copies of the book with others. One of the things that
0: really struck me, actually, is, is how accessible you are. You know, you, you're already a best-selling author before you publish this. And right the way that I can remember, you know, various times in your book, indistractably, hey, if you want to talk to me, just reach out and email me. I was like, I've just, I've never seen anybody do that before. And I think it's <laughs> lovely. You know, it's a, you. very human. I,
1: I enjoy it. You know, I'm really super passionate about this. I mean, this is, this is, this is, I, 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 really want to get the word out about this because it's really, you know, it's so improved my life in, in, in innumerable ways. And so I, I, I think it's an important message to get out there uh, because I think we hear too much of that other narrative that, uh, that we're not in control, that we're being controlled. And I, I just don't think that's true. And I, I think it's a, it's a very depressing uh, um, uh, message that, that doesn't empower people. So I really want to change that narrative and, and, and help people uh,
0: feel in control. Just just last few questions, there's one story I'd really like you to tell just from the book, uh, which I really, really liked. And uh, You talk about pre-commitment, making a commitment to a project, and at one point you talk about the way you got your manuscript finally to a draft, what you offer to do. If you could yeah. just quickly so, tell me that.
1: Sure. So the last strategy is called uh, preventing distraction with pacts. And pacts are a promise that you make to yourself or to someone else to make sure that as a last resort, as a firewall to prevent getting distracted, that you don't do something you didn't intend to do. And so there are three types of pacts. We have what we call an effort pact, a price pact, and an identity pact. And so the example you you mentioned is, is part of a price pact where we have some kind of disincentive to getting distracted. And again, a word of warning, you have to do this last. Don't try and jump to this technique I'm about to tell you first, it will backfire. You have to do this only after the first three steps of mastering the internal triggers, making time for traction, and hacking back the external triggers. Then use the techniques I'm about to tell you. So, the pact, there, there, one of these three packs is about making a price pact, which is where we, we have some kind of financial disincentive for doing something we don't want to do, for getting distracted. And so, I use this technique when I was at the home stretch of, you know, I finished all the research that I needed for the book, and I just needed to write the darn thing. And, uh, you know, for an author, it's very difficult to to stop the research because there's always more to learn. And so at some point I I needed to just sit down and write it. And so I used this technique of a price pack and I made a bet with my friend Mark. And I told him, if I don't finish my book by this date, I will give you $10,000. And that was a very hard bet to make. And I didn't want to do it. And I know many people out there say, oh, I could never do that. That discomfort, let me tell you, I, I took the bet. So I felt that discomfort. I really didn't want to shake his hand. But why? I didn't want to shake his hand because that meant that I would have to do the hard work of something I truly wanted to do. I just I I wanted to have done it. I didn't want to actually do it. And so that's why people sometimes hesitate to make these type of packs, to make these pre-commitments. But think about it, right? When it comes to losing weight, how many people pay thousands of dollars? for some program to tell them how to lose weight when they pretty much already know, right? We all basically know. <laughs> it's just that we don't want to do it. And so if we make a price pact as a last resort, and by the way, there's a lot of caveats. You have to read the book because if you don't do it correctly, it can backfire. There's only certain types of, of behaviors we can use this with. And there's, there's a lot of caveats here. But the idea here is, look, did I pay Mark the $10,000? The of course I didn't. Because I finished the book, (laughs) so not only did I keep my ten thousand dollars, I also got what I really wanted, which was to finish my manuscript. So uh, that that's an effective use of uh, what we call a price pack.
0: Yeah, I loved reading that. I just thought that was that was a really good, really good story. Just just a couple of generic questions I always ask at the end. What advice would near now, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself age nineteen?
1: Oh, at age nineteen,
0: or around that age, Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, to not take things so seriously. I think for a long time, I still struggle with that actually, that, uh, that it's easy for me to take things too seriously. And so I, I think if I, I try and still remind myself that today, Any advice,
0: how, how, how do you deal with failure?
1: Uh, so, so failure is a growth opportunity. I think that's, uh, that's the only way to deal with failure that, uh, that, that to look at failure as, as a a learning experience that there, you know, you, you, you can't, um, uh, what's that, what's that story about the, the, the kid who goes to the, the multimillionaire entrepreneur and he says, uh, you know, how, how did you become what you became? How did you become so successful? How did you become such a, such a great business person? And uh, the the business owner says experience, and he says, "Well, how did you gain experience from failure, right? Failure is how we gain experience. It's how we gain uh, knowledge into what we should do differently next time. And so, if you think about all the failures in your life, uh, you know, I, I, it's it, you, it's hard to find somebody who who wishes that they who regrets those failures because they teach you so much, right? They they make you into the person you become, and so." It, if you skip those failures uh, you would not have had the growth experience that made you who you are.
0: And, as, and I think sort of adding the caveat there, which you talk a lot about in your book is, you know, that being kind to yourself, being compassionate to yourself around those failures. I yeah. think really nice, isn't it? Um, and anything you'd like to add? How can people get hold of you? Anything you'd like to throw into the mix? Sure. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, to learn more about
1: me and my work, you can go to nearandfar.com. dot com. Near is spelled like my first name, so that's n i r and far dot com. far dot com. And, and uh, the book is called Indistractable: How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And it's available
0: wherever books are sold. Lovely. And and there's there's workbooks and all sorts of stuff that goes with it as well. And as you say, right in there, you you know you, you'd really encourage people to get in touch and reach out. So.
1: Absolutely. That's yeah, lovely. if you go to my blog, there's an 80-page complimentary workbook whether you buy the, the the book or not, it's yours free. Uh, that's also available at near and far.com.
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. Mira, I'm I'm aware that we 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 pretty much run out of time. So, thank you so much for showing up this time of the evening over over in Asia and sharing all your wisdom. It's it's been, it's been great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Be well.